Hi, welcome back to Coworking with Iris. I'm Iris Cavanaugh, and I'm excited today to be talking to my friend Jerome Chang of Blank Spaces. We'll be covering designing your space um, when it's cool to DIY, hopefully a fair amount of the time, and when you actually need to hire an architect or somebody to manage the build-out process. If you have any questions, please ask them um, by posting them to me on Twitter at Iris Cavanaugh, and let's get started. Hi, Jerome, welcome. Hi. Tell us a little about, about yourself today. Um, so I'm an architect and, uh, and the founder of Blank Spaces. Uh, we started about eight, nine years ago. Uh, founded in 07 and opened doors in early 08. So that makes us one of the, uh, one of the earlier adopters of this whole movement. Um, and I really just sought to find office space for myself and took it upon myself to uh, you know, invite people to join my office. Uh, so to this day, uh, I've been able to scale the, the company, the brand, um, opening a third location next week in Hollywood, which is now uh, about 15,000 square feet, so about three times more than my first one. Uh, first one's mid Wilshire at 5,000, downtown is about 8,000, and Hollywood is 15,000. Um, so it's been nice to watch the whole co-working movement grow and then uh, watch, you know, help grow my own company uh, proportionally. Um, and then separately, I also still practice as an architect for private clients, uh, mostly in the uh, office space and restaurants uh, uh, sectors. And what percentage of your private clients um, are co-working spaces or shared workspaces, or are they mostly traditional um, single occupying offices? Yeah, I haven't worked on a co-working kitchen yet. Uh, you would think that I would have dabbled in that already, um, but uh, I would say there's very few architects who have really studied this co-working space, and even fewer who also looked at restaurants, um, and then even fewer than that who've actually been in the trenches of operations to see how all that ties together. But, uh, you know, one day. Uh, but rest, the restaurant industry is already a tough animal as it is. And I, it's, uh, I applaud anyone who's tried to do it on a co-working level. Um, but, yes, most of my tenants, uh, my uh, private clients for office and restaurant sectors are all just single-use uh, occupiers. Um, I have done a bunch of consulting for co-working initiatives. Um, and I've done some design as the as the lead designer on those, um, but the only ones that have actually been built out uh, to my specs have just been for myself. Um, great. Well, let's go ahead and get started talking about the design process itself. Um, so, oftentimes, as we both know, um, in the co-working world, uh, somebody decides they want to open a co-working space out of a personal need or a professional need. Um, and they might not have any design background. They also might not have the money to um, spend on a huge expensive build-out or an architect to manage, um, to design and manage the build-out. Um, in that case, what advice do you give people who are needing to really DIY design their space, um, both with respect to providing a work environment that enhances collaboration and allows for the focused, quiet work that oftentimes people need throughout their work day um, and um, you know really keeps an eye on the bottom line 
Yeah, you know, hiring an architect is both a need and a want. Uh, I think the want is for sure there, unless you already are very experienced in designing a space, um, even if it's your, you know, your personal passion or hobby to know design, which usually will be decoration and not so much design. But um, so the want, I think, is there. Um, the value is hard to assess because, um, unfortunately, architects just aren't at, at the high level that doctors and lawyers are, that people feel the absolute need to hire them. And so it's more of a want, and I get it. Um, it's a challenge that we architects have to face every day. Um, but there's a lot of spaces out there who really need to hire an architect, either because uh, you need to rezone and therefore get a permit from the planning department, uh, you need to significantly make uh, big renovations in the space that then requires an architect to draw up the drawings and uh, even more importantly, sign the drawings in a way that uh, the city will then grant you a building permit. Uh, there are, of course, a ton of spaces out there, uh, co-working, cafes, uh, even restaurants, who never even got a proper building permit to build out. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll leave those alone. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's 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 dangerous. It's risky, uh, but it does happen. And you know, I don't fault people to cut corners just at a desperate need to save money or to get through the project faster. Um, when you add a permit process and a design process to all that, I can understand how uh, it, it seems to seem to often go on tangents. Um, so, yeah, basically, when you want to, uh, when you need to hire an architect. Is mostly when you need to rezone, or you have to significant amount of construction, uh, such as uh, you know adding or subtracting or replacing the bathrooms, um, or there's not enough exit doors, uh, where you, or add a exit door, uh, any any kind of thing that just looks like a lot of surgery. Is there sort of a general layout um, that you would um, advise is something to consider when designing a shared workspace? Um, if somebody is not able to hire an architect, how do they know sort of, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years in, in terms of, you know, open versus um, um, private offices and, mm. um, and phone booths and kitchens um, being, a, you know, a main aspect of the space versus tucked away into a little corner somewhere. Um, so, in terms of actual design features or or, or layout of the space itself, um, what kind of tips can you provide people? Yeah, you know this whole argument about open and closed thing is, you know, it's not so black and white. In fact, it's almost never black and white. Um, I I really believe that there's you know lack of better words a more there's a fifty shades of gray in between, uh, and maybe you know. Uh, for the sake of my own brand colors, Fifty Shades of Blue. Um, just like co-working is mostly driven by the culture, the programming, the community. So these intangible aspects that are quite critical, but yet, you know, not tangible. And it's hard, they're not very discreet. Um, architecture is very much driven by the intangibles as well, the programming, the circulation. Uh, the occupancy type, which is, you know, whether you have an event or uh, event usage or office usage or some kind of retail usage. Um, all those intangibles really are what drives and shapes the space. 
And if you can think about more of what you want or need and not the end result as in, you know, close or open, um, I think you'll really derive, you'll arrive at a much better holistic, overall better, uh, I guess, solution or space. Um, but I can understand why, you know, the tangible, the discrete, black and white, open and close uh, is, is what people use and they rely on, even though it's only like not even 5% of how I conceive of a space and how anyone should conceive of a space. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we were to then talk about um, the open space in, in a, in a co-working space, which, you know, I think we can all agree that some type of open space is critical for collaboration. Um, how would you go about offering design advice to somebody who is creating, uh, you know, creating open space? Um, and, you know, how much light do you think is important in that open space? Um, mm -hmm. Is it okay to, to if, you, if you move into a building that has low ceilings, um, you know, how do you get around um, some of those constraints within a building if you don't have a big budget um, and be able to provide that open collaborative atmosphere that really um, inspires people to want to work together? Yeah, I, I think... People have a lot more tools than they realize. And part of that really is just how you perceive, uh, perceive your own problem. Uh, you know, if you think of black and white, there's obviously a gray, and then there's shades of gray. So instead of thinking so binary, just like the gender discussions of whether you're, you know, for one gender or the other, there's actually a lot of more, a lot more variations of that. And, um, so if you think simply um, in an open space, you know, so black and just white, is, are there multiple variations within black? And are there multiple variations within white? And let's just say white is open and black is uh, a closed office space. Uh, in a closed office space, does it have to be all closed or can be somewhat open and somewhat closed? Well, suddenly now your black has versions of black. You know, maybe it's shiny black, maybe it's matte black. And you're white, it may be open, but which part of it is open? Right? Uh, are, is it an open space where you're facing each other? Or is it an open space where you're not facing each other? You know, the other way. And that's already two more, right? Mm -hmm. um, or maybe it's only facing each other, maybe one person sitting down and one person standing up. You're open, but you're at different elevations. So this is a classic case is maybe an open double height atrium where you have a ground floor and you have a mezzanine. Both are open, but different elevations. So you have, you have layers there. And so it's about breaking down and almost dissecting what you think as one or two options and breaking it down even more so there's more layers, more tools. And from there, you suddenly have an arsenal of tools and you mix and match accordingly. Just like if you have, um, if you have a, a separate meeting area, okay, but it doesn't have four walls, it's designated as meeting area, so it's physically separate from the rest of the open space. Acoustically, it's open. Visually, it's not because it has some kind of you know, divider, right? So in, in almost in some sense, you can almost break it down into your five senses, right? If it's open, is it open visually, open acoustically, open 
by, by smell. Maybe it's only open by visual, but closed by this. So visual would be glass, and, uh, but then it cuts off most of the noise. So your open now has three or four layers. So if you look at your human senses, you look at it in terms of directionality, any number of ways you want to just say, can open just be one, a, a monologue, or is it multiple variations, and suddenly you have an arsenal of tools? So what I'm hearing to the answer to the majority of these questions I'm asking so far is, is kind of, in, in a lot of ways, the sort of default or go-to answer for anything in the co-working business mm -hmm. uh, or in the co-working movement, which is it depends on what your community's needs are or what your particular brand is or um, you know, what the space itself naturally provides. Um, and so what we're really referring to here is a spectrum. There's a spectrum of design um, and how you look at design as how, as to it, in terms of how it relates to the community that you have um, and the community that you're developing, um, just as there is a spectrum of that community. Um, and so if we were to look at the spectrum um, as being more geared towards collaboration and um, less geared towards um, individual private spaces, which I think we, we can agree don't necessarily foster community as readily as open collaborative spaces do, um, how would you, um, how would you then advise somebody to look at an open space? And let me take an example. Um, so let's say I'm going to open a community-based, people-based um, co-working space. And I have a building that I've identified as the building that I'm going to um, open my space out of. I don't have a lot of money to spend on build-out. And... <clears throat> There's 18 private offices. There's a small open space. Um, but most, the majority of those private offices are built with um, really removable pony walls. Um, I would like to provide more open space, um, being that I would like to encourage more collaboration. And I also believe that in my market, the majority of my members are going to be uh, individuals, freelancers, single operators. So would you say that I should look at sort of a percentage of my revenue goals um, as well as uh, the, what the market can bear in terms of types of memberships um, in order to determine which offices I should tear down and create open space out of? How would you advise me to make those decisions? Well, at the end of the day, it's a business. So you're going to have to look at your economics. Um, I've been recently advocating a direct correlation between your revenue and your design and to then uh, have a strong dialogue and therefore justify um, any money that you invest towards a certain space, whether it's a desk, it's a lounge seat, uh, or an office space or meeting, private office or meeting room space. Uh, I think that's a really difficult uh, conclusion to make off the cuff like this, but you just have to see what you want to spend, really, and what revenue you can get out of it. Um, but if you have a slate of private offices, I would really encourage, uh, in create, instead of creating one big open space and then wondering if it's too loud or such, I would try creating pockets of open space. So let's say you have 
uh, a line of office space, one hallway and a line of office spaces, and let's say 10 offices on each side of the corridor. Instead of creating, instead of taking down four offices on one end and creating open space and then a string of offices, I would create a pocket of open space, maybe every third office. And so you have open spaces, but that they have some level of privacy and separation between one and the other, and that can help minimize the distractions from one space to the next. Mm. So in doing so, you're naturally creating pockets where people can mix, people can mingle, people can dive in and get some heads down individual work done. Um, when yeah, I was because you have, you have an overall community that you're, that you're fostering, right? Mm -hmm. And that is curated or a subset of your public community, which is your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But within your space, you have to be able to break it down so that your community can then subdivide itself, maybe by sector, maybe by friends, maybe by company so that one company can carve out one section and kind of have their own area, but then they can still work within an overall co-working space. So you're allowing it to subdivide and layered in a way that isn't so, again, binary. It isn't about offices on one side and open space on the other. You can really mix it in. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the discussion of hiring an architect, what are, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who would be opening a space out of a personal or, or individual professional need, um, they might not have ever worked with an architect before yeah. or, or know how to find a good architect yeah. who knows what they're doing, um, especially with this, I don't want to say futuristic, but future of work type design that we're talking about here. It's a shift in the mm -hmm. way that we've been working um, until the last 10 years or so. Um, so what tips do you have to share with people for how to find an architect that is going to be the right person to, uh, and the right fit for their project? You know, I had a restaurant client who I work with every few years. It's um, been great. He you know, opens a restaurant every few years, so it's, uh, it's a repeat business for me. One of the things he says to me I've always uh, remembered was he only wants to hire consultants with whom he could have a beer with with whom that person would want to come to the restaurant on their own and bring other people, which means bring more business. So at the end of the day, a lot of us consultants are, we're commodities. Mm -hmm. Commodities with some better, slightly better value than the, the next commodity, but we architects are really commodities. So are lawyers, so are doctors. Uh, some of us are specialties, but you know, at the end of the day, we look the same to to a potential client as any other architect would look. So if you can then qualify people based on some experience and what you can afford, at the end of the day, you want to figure out, can I work with this person? It's like a job interview, right? Mm -hmm. Can I sit next to this person for these eight-hour design workshops or work through a protracted design process to make sure the space works the way you want it to? Um, yeah, do I just like the person? It's really at the end of the day. Yeah, and I would I would agree with um, the tendency to want to hire somebody who's both a cultural fit for your organization and um, and and that you know that embarking on this log project, um, you know you you feel like you you know that you can work with this person that you're likable. You might decide to go out um, after work for some drinks together, or you you know you want to have a beer together. Um, I guess what I'm asking is more, is there a, you know, is every architect trained in exactly the same disciplines? 
-hmm. Are there people who are more or less qualified to um, to work on projects um, that that provide workspace for a variety of different working styles. Yeah. Um, and and if so, how, what are the sort of key factors in identifying those people? Right. Uh, now, architects are just like doctors and lawyers. There's generalists. There's specialists. There's um, experience and there's inexperience. And then there's the outright, you know, corrupt, horrible, lying, deceiving types. Um, the office like the office sector, sector is its own little animal, and, and it seems so easy because so you just throw in some desks, some desks and, and how hard could it be? Could it be? But when you look when at you look that, at your, it, office that your office is going gener to generate revenue. It's not a necessary it's evil. It's not a fixed overhead expense. You're not just throwing money into a pretty space. This is going to drive your revenue. No different than creating the engine of your car. You might create the most beautiful car, but if that engine doesn't go anywhere, you're not going anywhere. So it's gonna you'll want to find an architect who understands business, really. Um, just like when you look for a lawyer, you don't want a lawyer that just gives you a lot of babble and runs up the billable hours. They may be a super expert. But if they can't just step back and say, does it really matter what it means legally? Like, how can I help my client uh, make a strong business decision because at the end of the day, a lot of legal problems can be solved through a business through a business uh, decision. And architecture, as much expertise as an architect can provide, uh, needs to be able to help you make a business decision, whether you want more desks, fewer desks, more offices, or not. Um, so you want to find an architect that has that mindset. And a lot of architects, unfortunately, they come from a lot of creative sides where. They don't like it. They don't like business. They don't have an interest in business. They just aren't good at it. And but they're really good at you know their section of architecture. It's going. I'd avoid that type when you're designing a co-working space. Um, but uh, then the hardest one is finding an architect who's lived and breathed co-working or some kind of shared space where they basically get it. And you'll never get it unless you've been in there. Um, I've really met almost no one or maybe one other uh, who's like me who has not only been in the trenches but actually have run it, scaled an operation, and still practice architecture. Not to say that I have some special sauce, um, but like others who, like people who aren't parents yet and make assessments about what parenting is like, you just don't know until you've become a parent. And once you're thrown in that, it's a, uh, you just have a sudden awareness. This is certainly true. Until you actually have run a co-working space <laughs> um, or a co-working company, um, it's really hard to know what you're getting yourself into. Um, so one question that I've been thinking about is um, in terms of the DIY aspect, um, you know, a lot of people start out with small budgets and so they'll buy furniture where they can. Um, sometimes that furniture is used furniture. Sometimes they inherit furniture from the company that was in the space before. Um, mix and match furniture from Craigslist or FreeCycle, mm -hmm. you know, wherever they can get it. Um, so how do you see furniture playing in the, into the design mix in this, um, you know, from this angle? Um, and do you find that it's possible to successfully mix 
um, the sort of old furniture that you that you inherit with some new pieces? And if so, what are those essential pieces that you recommend to people that they have in a space? Yeah, uh, this is a matter of style. Um, I think if you look back at the history of co uh, coffee shops and uh, see how the mom and pops run it versus the bigger brands, there's a consistency that you most will eventually want, uh, if nothing else, just to know how to maintain them. Um, because if you have 10 different, you know, it's like having three TVs in your house and three different remotes. You'd rather have the same TV so that the same remotes work everywhere. Same thing with troubleshooting, maintaining some of your furniture that may or may not last through the years. Uh, I'm a big advocate of keeping the same, but it's also more expensive. I get it. Um, but you know, furniture in general is going to become, it has become more and more important in these kind of spaces because it really is a shift your dollars from your your uh, capex, uh, your um, capital improvements such as walls and ceiling towards uh, FF&E, which is furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Uh, it's more dollars toward there. Uh, one, because the emphasis is about a variety of furniture spaces versus so much a variety of physical spaces, even though I don't agree with that, but it's what people are doing. Uh, and the more efficient your space is, which means the more people you want to be able to fit in there, that means you just need more chairs. You know, if a traditional space, office space, can hold 50 people, and you figure out a way to fit 75 people in there, well, you just added 25 more seats to your budget. Uh, so I guess the number one thing you really want in your furniture budget uh, and focus on is uh, is your chairs. Yeah. So often we talk about chairs um, as being sort of the most important thing. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously part of that has to do with the fact that people are sitting on them all day long. Um, and so they need to be comfortable. They need to be ergonomic. Um, what else do you find important in a chair? Um, you know, and is a, a Costco chair or an Ikea chair comparable to uh, a steel case or Han um, or, you know, Aeron chair? Yeah, uh, the, biggest, uh, the biggest pros of buying from Staples, Ikea, CB2, West Elm is that they're much cheaper per chair. Uh, the biggest downside is, is that the warranties are limited uh, or non-existent. If you buy a steel case, Herman Miller, Hone, or anything, they almost always have a five or even lifetime warranty. So you know that anything happens, you can call them up and get it fixed. Uh, so it just depends on your timeline of what your, invest, your investment to these uh, the chairs. Mm -hmm. um, and your budget, of course, because with, a, yeah. with one of the higher end chairs, you're looking at base a base cost of five hundred dollars a chair normally right unless you've oh. got a super discount yeah um, I mean, as opposed you, you to basically have to yeah you basically have to budget between four fifty and eight four fifty and seven hundred dollars for a true task chair um so mm -hmm. people will say fine you know what i'll get a hundred dollars from ikea and every year i'll get a new chair and uh, after five years i'll want you know brand new chair so it's going to look great but you know, mm -hmm. IKEA discontinues uh, items sometimes, and so you're not going to be able to buy that same chair every year, year in and year out. And if you're okay with a you know differentiation or variety or discontinued, then you know that's just you roll the dice. Um, but specifically about chairs, no matter where you buy from, I think I I encourage people to really look at chairs 
because when you're sitting all day long and it's fixed, whether it's on carpet or concrete or any type of flooring, uh, that ability to not at all move or adjust to your little nuances throughout the day is going to weigh you down. Those wheels really, really help. The only time I think you should use uh, chairs without wheels is in a setting where you're not going to be there for more than an hour or two, such as a meeting, uh, well, something called a guest chair, where in a private office you have a main chair and you have a secondary chair. The secondary chair is for guests and visitors, guests and visitors. So really look for uh, chairs with wheels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, touchdown space versus all-day workspace, um, there's a really big difference in what people's bodies can withstand. Um, and at the end of the day, if the, if the furniture doesn't support them, then they're not going to be able to get their best work done. Um, we just have a, another minute here. I'd like to wrap up with a, a general sort of how to avoid mistakes that you've made in the past. Um, mm -hmm. So you've been designing and running co-working spaces for almost nine years now. Um, what is the most common mistake you made in the beginning or that you see people make um, at blanks, you know, either at blank spaces or just in the co-working world? What's sort of the one mistake you advi advise people to avoid? Um, you know, this was my first uh, business, and I really did not know how to either bootstrap, stretch my dollar, or kind of hack and be more creative. Um, I should have really done some research on, or either worked for a startup or done some research on, uh, or networked and learned how startups and small businesses you know, run their business. I could have saved a ton of money. And so the corollary to that is really just capital, and that's no different than any other business. Uh, it's hard to predict your sales and your volatility in your sales and just your cash flow, and having access to capital will save your life. Um, so uh, one is uh, cheap, it's education, learn, get yourself in the trench set. The second is uh, no different than everyone else's money. Okay, so some really general um, tips there. Um, finally, let me just ask the question of the moment, since I know we talked about this beforehand. Um, it, it can be hard at times in co-working spaces to find, especially ones that have more open space, to find a good place to make a phone call. And you don't want to be that guy in the cafe with a super loud phone voice, you know, making sales calls all day long or running trainings on your um, computer, you know, remote trainings with your remote team. So a lot of spaces look to phone booths as a place for members to duck into um, without having to take over conference room time for a quick you know, hour-long private call or such. Some people have um, members who tend to camp in phone booths all day long and consider them their little micro office. And others have phone booths that are really inadequately designed in that they, it gets really hot in there. Um, there's no soundproofing. Um, what is your overall take on a phone booth? Yeah, Iris, you know the answer to this. You asked this just because <laughs> you want to say it. I am the single only person in the entire coding wall who completely, who has not deviated from this position, which is phone booths are horrible. They're bad. Don't do it. They're a waste of money. I don't even think they're legally allowed because they do not comply with ADA. So please don't spend your money on it. I was just in a phone booth yesterday at a very uh, heavily funded workspace that 
has a lot of experience scaling and designing these spaces. And their phone booths did absolutely nothing. Zilch, nada to the acoustics. It gives you a false, sense of a false sense of security that when you're in there, your calls will be private. You know the only reason why your calls are private in that phone booth is that it's nowhere near a workspace. That's it. It could have been an open door made out of tissue paper. That would have done just the same job. The only thing that gives you that psychology, that emotional feel that is private is that there's a physical barrier that when you close that door, you felt that air gap just kind of go like, right? Hmm. But sound leak right through. I heard footsteps, light footsteps, loud footsteps. I heard whispers right through the door, in and out. The person outside of me said they could hear everything I said. So, so not a private place to work. Perhaps... Um, Perhaps a uh, a better designed phone booth could be on its way. <laughs> yeah, Since I don't I mean, think I don't think we have that cone of silence, Liz, as I was talking about. Nobody's developed that cone of silence yet. To well, drop there, there is a couple of these technology things where it kind of helps break that sound. You know, if you put this cone thing in there, uh, that probably helps better than a phone booth, honestly, because it's actually been researched more. Uh, but please, my, my one piece of advice is just don't do it. If you do it because you like the look, you like the kitschness of it, because it harks back to the days of analog, um, you know, plain old telephone system, fine. But don't think that you're actually doing anything help, to help the, help the cause by uh, eliminating, uh, by separating uh, privacy. Nothing. Well, there we have it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much um, for talking with me today, Jerome. It's been a pleasure. And um, I will see you uh, on a different call okay. <laughs> in the near future. Okay, great. <laughs> thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And um, I will see you back here next week at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll be talking with Melissa Sobers of the Kansas City Coworking Alliance about the benefits to building an alliance of shared workspaces in your region, um, how that benefits your community, your bottom line, and um, the larger community as a whole. Looking forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>